That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hi, my name is Lori Santos, and my dilemma is how you get people to do what they really want to do. Like, even when we know what we need to do to be happy, we don't always do that. So how can we force people to behave better? I mean, I feel like you're the expert on this, right? You literally teach the class on this. But seriously, I can imagine you've got, when you've got a third of the students at Yale in your class, there's probably going to be some that aren't listening or aren't buying in, or you've got people in your work or personal life that don't care about all the research you've done, all the ways that you can prove that our lives actually get better when we're meditating and connecting with people and exercising and being grateful and all that goodness. So even though I know you're the expert, I know you're not immune to having people around you that you'd like to help. And I feel the same way. Ever since I got into learning more about neuroplasticity and the ways we can actually change our brain and personality and moods, I've been wanting to share it with people, which is why I have people like you on the podcast to get as many people as possible to sort of buy in on it and join me in this new super happy place that I found and to understand all of the science that backs it up. So if they're not naturally predisposed to believe it, they'll they'll buy in. And I bet your research would tell you the same thing as the author of the book Better Than Before, which I've been reading, which is about sort of changing your habits. And she writes that people respond better to watching someone else live a great life to have and practice good habits uh, than, than being told about it and why they should do it. And that they respond better to you kind of talking about how great it is and then letting them be versus nagging or demanding that they change. So it can be tough. I've got friends and family that I want to shake because they aren't doing the things that they could to make themselves happier and more satisfied but I know that they respond better to saying, join me at yoga or check out this great book than to say, tell them what they're doing wrong repeatedly. And I think that's all we can do. But I'm sure you already know that. Like I said, you teach the class on this, girl. The commission has spoken. My guest this week is Lori Santos, professor of psychology at Yale University, director of Yale's Comparative Cognition Laboratory and Canine Cognition Center, and the head of Silliman College at Yale. In January of 2018, she started teaching a class called Psychology and the Good Life and it's breaking attendance records at the university. She's won countless awards as a student and teacher, and in 2018, she received a Genius Award from the Liberty Science Center in New Jersey. She's also hosted the new podcast, The Happiness Lab, which launches today, September 17th. We talk about her groundbreaking course about finding and maintaining happiness and how our brains trick us, why the G.I. Joe fallacy leads us astray, and how to rewire ourselves to lead happier lives. Plus, her work with dogs and monkeys to better understand human brains and stuff like, do dogs really feel guilt? And are they more rational than humans in learning new things? Plus, are dog breeds all that different? Or is it just their training and their experiences? I think you guys are going to love this. I really loved talking to her. That's what she said. I am super pumped for this. And yes, I know I'm going to get all the comments that I say that every single podcast. But this time, I really mean it even more than some of the other ones. Because uh, even just doing the research for this has uh, been so fascinating. And all of you who are regular listeners to the podcast are absolutely going to immediately understand all the ways the things that I always talk about are going to come to a head and sort of become one in this conversation with Lori Santos. Um, before we get to all the amazing stuff you're working on now, uh, I quickly, and I want to do it more quickly than I usually do just because I want to get to all that good stuff. Uh, want to go back and, and start from the beginning. Uh, when you were growing up in New Bedford, Massachusetts, your, your dad was a programmer. Your mom was a guidance counselor. When you were growing up, uh, what did you think you wanted to do when you were an adult? 
I think like, you know, there just weren't that many people who had all kinds of crazy careers when I was growing up. So if you went to college, you were either going to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I knew I didn't want to be a medical doctor that just blood is icky and that stuff. So I think I wanted to be a lawyer, but I had zero concept of what lawyers actually did. Your dad is Cape Verdean, which I believe is like an African-American Portuguese descent. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I'm kind of biracial, uh, kind of a mix of lots of different ethnicities. Yeah. Did that affect you growing up and were you in an area that was pretty diverse? Yeah, I think there's lots of Cape Verdeans in New Bedford, you know, lots of Puerto Rican, Portuguese individuals, like other kinds of like Latinx folks. And I think that was awesome. It kind of felt like, you know, we were growing up with like these rich communities of people from different backgrounds, but kind of just this idea that, you know, everyone was kind of a mix and diverse. Um, it's funny because growing up in New Bedford, uh, being Cape Verdean isn't all that strange because there are lots of Cape Verdeans there, but I learned the hard way that everywhere else in the world, like there are not that many Cape Verdeans around. You kind of have to explain it to folks, like what that ethnicity is. Yeah, I was going to say, like, most people, myself included, before reading this, did not even know where it was. <laughs> like, it's, Yeah, people it's... are like, are you, you Cambodian? Like, what is it, you know? And so uh, it's a set of islands off the coast of uh, Africa, and uh, they there's lots of Cape Verdean folks around the Northeast because uh, folks came over on whaling ships um, and kind of mm. took jobs that way. So if yeah. you go, go to New England seaports, you tend to meet a lot of Cape Verdeans. So a lot of your work is predicated on, you know, observing people, understanding people, and even now animals. Uh, when you were growing up, was that a natural thing for you, or is it something that uh, came about later in life? Yeah, I think I was always sort of a natural psychologist. You know, I was like, you know, the kid that would always like try to hang out at the adult table and find out what was going on and, you know, what people's mm-hmm. motivations were and stuff. Um, I think, you know, I was always sort of fascinated with mind and how people work and, and just kind of the puzzle of the fact that people – you know, they don't always act in the way you think they're going to act or, you know, even kind of trying to understand my own motivations, you know, why is it so hard to get yourself to do the things you really want to do? Or, you know, like, why do we rationalize? Like, there just seem to be so many puzzles of human behavior. And even from as young as I can remember, I was sort of fascinated by them. So you're in high school. Did you do sorts of activities or sports or anything? Um, I was like a full on nerd and just like not very athletic. I played, uh, I played baseball, like little league for a while. Um, and I golfed, which was mostly just because, you know, it was fun to kind of round around in the golf cart. So not huge, not huge sporty, <laughs> sporty chick, sadly. What about, and so not into like music and theater and stuff. You were really just interested in, in sort of your studies. Yeah, I did a little bit of on the theater side. Like if any, if I was going to be characterized by anything, I'd be more of a like, you know, theater nerd and not even an acting nerd, more like back tech folk. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah for sure. Yeah, stage, stage crew, stage crew. Yeah. Um, so you end up at Harvard University, um, and while you were there, you were a research assistant, and your travels um, to an island east of Puerto Rico really influenced what you wanted to study. Before that trip, uh, did you have an idea of what kind of psychology would be would be of interest? Yeah, I think I just kind of didn't know. I mean, kind of all of psychology was sort of interesting, but um, what that trip changed is I, I ended up working with a faculty member there who... Uh, does work with with monkeys, like basically studying how monkeys think and what that tells us about human nature. And so even when I was just like a sophomore, I got to head to his field site in Puerto Rico. And it kind of just cinched a lot of things for me. When you when you hang out with, you know, this interesting group of monkeys, that's like completely habituated to humans, they're just fascinating. And you kind of wonder like, well, what are they thinking and how are they different from us? So that kind of just launched a long path of me trying to study this question about what makes the human mind unique. 
yeah, there's some there's just fascinating studies about monkeys that I think are like the gateway for so many people. My favorite class in college as an English major who only took one thing remotely related to um, like psychology and, and stuff was human bonding and the studying, you know, how you studied rhesus monkeys to help determine patterns in raising um, human infants and stuff. Um, so it's, it's really interesting uh, that that would be the thing that sort of spurred you to not only um, continue following psychology, but specifically the psychology of animals. Um, so at that point, you come back from that trip, and what do you envision in terms of um, your career based on your newfound interest in that? Yeah, I think, you know, like maybe for better or for worse, I'm not sure I was thinking about my career back then. You know, this was the 90s when, like, the dot-com boom was happening, and people just were like, no one was scared of jobs. People were like, oh, you know, right. work out, just, you know, found <laughs> Facebook or something like that, right? Um, so I just kind of thought the science was fun. You know, I was sort of enjoying asking those questions and kind of exploring things. I was a little bit blindsided when my senior year came around and I had to pick a career. But, you know, next step of doing a Ph.D. and kind of keeping going with what had been working so far seemed to make sense at the time. Yeah, she stuck with school. You got your master's and your Ph.D. from Harvard in psychology with a focus on cognition, brain and behavior. And was it right after you were done with your Ph.D. that you got the gig at Yale? Yeah, it kind of happened in, in a like really fortuitous way, which is that you know Yale was looking for somebody doing you know some of this work on animals, and I was kind of in the right place at the right time. Uh, in some ways, it's really fast. Like most people in my field, you know, do what's called a postdoc, which you kind of like train in someone's lab for a while before you become a professor. I was a little bit more on the fast track, which wound up being amazing. Yale's just an amazing place to kind of do my work, but. You know, it, it was a bit of a sprint for a person right out of grad school. You know, I was basically teaching college students in my late 20s, right, as a professor there. So it was a little bit fast. Yeah, absolutely. So was the um, Comparative Cognition Laboratory and the Canine Cognition Center, were those in existence at Yale when you arrived? No, both of those were kind of things that I uh, had started up, you know, starting with the Comparative Cognition Lab. That's the lab where we you know, try to study, like, how monkeys make sense of the world to get some hints about how humans think. And the idea there is that if you really want to understand what makes us special, you know, why we have sports and podcasts and language and conversations like we're doing now, like you actually have to figure out what animals do and, and why they don't do the same stuff that we do. And so I started a lab where I also was doing research in Puerto Rico where we studied monkeys and then more recently tried to, to study this question with some critters that are a little bit closer to home, namely our domesticated dogs, like pet dogs from the community. Um, and that kind of built off work. You know, monkeys are, are some of our closest living relatives because they're in the primate order. But dogs really grow up in human homes. So they're kind of exposed to the same experiences that we are. So when you combine studying the two of them, it's kind of like you get a little bit of the nature and a little bit of the nurture. You kind of look at the, the evolutionary side of human nature from studying the primates, but then also kind of what we get from living in a human environment from studying dogs. Yeah, and your research is mainly the idea of like what makes the human mind unique and by finding two that are similar either evolution-wise or in terms of experiences, that can actually um, tell us more about humans. So um, I'm fascinated with dogs. I have three rescue dogs. I'm a bit obsessed. <laughs> you have to bring them up open. to Yale so we can study yeah. them. <laughs> I know. I was like reading about it and I was like, oh, I wish I lived nearby because I would totally want you to tell me all about them and how smart they are and wonderful and how they're the best dogs you've ever met, um, which I'm sure people do. 
what's the <laughs> misconception about dogs? You know, I, there are so many studies and, and there's so many stories that people will write about how we either attribute too many human characteristics to them or we aren't understanding enough about the ways in which they actually do, you know, feel and communicate. What would you say are the biggest misconceptions about dogs? Well, I think we, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I think we have misconceptions both ways. There's certain times when we think, you know, our dogs are thinking these like incredibly sophisticated things, you know, showing really human-like capacities. And then when you do the studies, you find out like, oh, they're kind of not, you know, thinking about the problem in the same way as we might, you know. And one of my favorite examples of this comes um, when you see dogs expressing guilt, right? You know, so if you're, I'm sure your dog is a perfectly right. behaved dog, never did anything wrong, but you know, <laughs> some people's dogs, you know, like, you know, tear up the toilet paper or do something bad in the house. And when you see them afterwards, they often will show this behavioral expression that looks like they're feeling guilty. Well, one researcher, Alexandra Horowitz, tried to test if dogs were really feeling guilt about what they did. And so she did this cute study where she um, allowed dogs to do something bad. Some dogs did the bad thing, some dogs didn't. But then she told the dog's uh, owners that the dog either did the bad thing or not. And so some dogs actually did the bad thing and some dogs didn't do the bad thing, but their owners think they did. And the question is, what controls their guilty expression? Well, it turns out that the dog's guilty expression had nothing to do with what they'd actually done. If they'd actually done something bad, it only had to do with whether their owner was kind of mad at them. So it seems like what the guilty expression is, it might be dogs kind of way of like placating us, realizing like, ooh, I don't know what I did, but she's mad at me right now. So I better kind of look like, you know, I'm sort of feeling it. And so that's, that's a domain really where it's like, you know, when dogs show that behavior, you can't help but think like, oh, they've thought about what they did and they realize what's wrong and et cetera, et cetera. But that seems to not be kind of what's going on. And then the flip side are cases where, you know, we t- tend to think that dogs, you know, aren't as smart as humans and so on. But there are some domains where dogs are actually smarter than we are. Um, for example, uh, humans will mess up and kind of overcopy the things that they see people do. We're kind of really prone to falling for other people's bad advice. Um, but dogs, not so much. And so it seems like there are some spots where dogs behave in a way that are, that's even more rational than that of humans. Uh, than human behavior. And so, you know, they're, they're not in some ways as smart as we think they are, but they're not often as stupid as we think they are, too. I was listening to you on a podcast called Very Bad Wizards. And at the time, this was uh, sometime last year, you were talking about studying the way that dogs learn and whether the way that humans presume that somebody is being genuine and honest in the way they want to teach you actually limits us because then we only pay attention to the things that person is telling us are interesting or novel or worth learning, whereas dogs are potentially not predisposed to expect us to introduce all interesting aspects of something to them. So they just explore it in their own way. Did you end up continuing to kind of study that dichotomy between the two? Yeah, it's still kind of some ongoing work in the lab. So we don't exactly have the, you know, the final empirical answer yet. But generally, lots of our studies are kind of looking at this, like, you know, there's certain kinds of things that we as humans do in our learning that aren't really that optimal. You know, this one you said is that we kind of, you know, trust the information we give it, we're given, and that can often cause us like not to explore as much as we could, right? You know, like think about the fake news phenomena, like, oh, you see the headline must be true, right? We don't kind of take the second step and kind of look and explore a little bit more. Um, But our hypothesis is that dogs might actually do that, that they might kind of keep going and keep exploring even when they're given information. So we're still kind of, that's still some ongoing work that we're studying. But yeah, there's some rich hints that the ways that dogs learn might be more effective or more rational than some of the ways that humans learn. So you mentioned earlier, they kind of learn to assume this face or this posture of guilt um, 
obviously, if they learn something, it's because it benefits them, right? So in that mm-hmm. case, would they be learning to react that way because humans are less likely to be mad at a dog that looks sorry? I think that's right. Yeah, you know, they might learn over time, like, up oh, if I just kind of act like this, you know, whenever there's mad expression on the part of the human, um, it might, you know, might save them some time. It might protect yeah. them, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is kind of funny to think that we're shaping their behavior in these kind of ways. Um, but I think that's something, you know, dogs are really good at learning, and they've grown up in this very human-like environment, right? That's what happens over domestication. They get really good at dealing with our behavior and learning from us. Um, but not often in the ways we assume. What would you say the most interesting or surprising thing that you've discovered when you're doing these studies with dogs has been? I think it's been, you know, in some ways how bad our intuitions are about dogs, right? Again, there's certain things we assume that they're just really good at and they're kind of just like having these rich mental lives like ours. And in some domains, that's just kind of not the case. Whereas in other domains, you assume, like, there's no way, you know, any animal could understand something like this. But then all of a sudden, you test dogs, and they're, they're pretty good at it. I mean, I was pretty humbled when I found out that dogs are kind of more rational in the way they learn than even humans and human children are. Um, it suggests that, you know, they've, they've gotten some cognitive skills out of this domestication process where they've learned with us. And we're only at the start of kind of understanding how that works. A lot of times what people are studying is begins focused on one thing and ends up influencing or really informing something else. Have you found that there are aspects of this work with dogs that you've then wanted to send off to somebody to study other aspects? Like whether that's, um, could we breed dogs specifically based on X or Y to do something that we currently don't use them for or that we maybe underestimate their abilities at? Yeah, we're, I think we're doing something close, which is that we're doing some follow-ups uh, with dogs who are trained in really particular ways. So most of our studies are kind of people's pet dogs, which vary. You know, some pet dogs are really well-trained. You know, we have some dogs who come into the center who are therapy dogs or have done agility training and so on. Um, but rarely do they get the kind of training that you might need to be a service dog, for example. And so right now we're trying to, we're partnering uh, with a group called Canine Companions for Independence that trains service dogs that help with disabled individuals. And we're trying to look at whether or not the training they get kind of is affected by, whether the training they get actually affects the abilities that they show in our studies. And the hope with that is that, you know, if we find there are some differences, we might down the line be able to come up with better ways to train dogs so that they can really be helpful in these kind of really essential service settings where, you know, they have this kind of employment that kind of help people. And so if we understand more about how they learn and how you can train them, we might be able to help kind of build better service dogs over time. Obviously, there are some dogs that are, you know, smarter or dumber than the other. And there are some breeds that are known for being smarter or, or better learners. Uh, do you think that we overestimate that and it happens to be more about the owner? Or do you think that there is a pretty easy to spot difference within breeds or even just within dog to dog? Yeah, I think, you know, so there's lots and lots of variants in dogs. Like, you know, you can see that in the center from just their size to how they react to a different problem or puzzle, how they solve things and so on. Um, Where that variance comes from is tricky because I think we have this strong intuition that it's about breed. You know, people even say like, oh, you don't want to study my dog because it's just a mutt. I'm sure it's really dumb or it's a a breed that's kind of thought to be dumb or something over time. Um, But in practice, we actually don't know where those differences come from and if they're based on breeds. And one reason that is, is that, you know, overall, different breeds tend to be trained differently. You know, like if you have a, 
uh, a chihuahua, you're probably not going to train them to be an agility dog. You're probably not going to train them to be, you know, an aggressive guard dog. Like you kind of treat it differently or, you know, no one's like making aggressive Yorkie poo, like, you know, like guard dogs kind of thing. Um, and vice versa, you know, if you have a, a border collie or a dog that's you know, tends to kind of be more on the kind of hyper side, you're going to probably do more work to train them and to put them through agility training and so on. All that goes to say it's hard for us to find subjects that are different breeds but equated for training, right? And that's what we really need to run that study. We want to kind of vary, is it the training or is it the breed? And we don't really have all the cells to do the right studies. But hints that we have so far suggest that what's really doing the work of causing the differences is the dog's experiences and how they're trained. It's a little bit less breed differences than we think, but honestly, the jury's still out. In fact, just this past week, there was a new um, big paper that made a big splash looking at neuroscientific differences, so literally like differences in brain size and brain parts between dogs of different breeds, and that paper was making the claim that like, actually, you do see some important brain differences between the breeds that might lead to important behavioral differences. So I think you know, like with many things in the field of canine cognition, you know, we're just starting to study some of these things scientifically. And so the jury's still out. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the primate studies that you're doing, what's something that you've learned uh, that's been really interesting to you in, in terms of how it uh, tells us things about the human mind? Yeah, well, the primates are fascinating, I think, in, in, for a different way than dogs. You know, dogs are around us all the time. And so I think we have these strong intuitions because, you know, they're part of our family and we're kind of thinking about what they're thinking about all the time. Um, I think the monkeys are more fascinating just because we don't, you know, most people don't interact with them a lot. Um, But what's striking is how similar they are to us, it seems like. But in terms of their cognition, we're also seeing these like really big differences. And one of my favorite differences that I find really cool is that it seems like humans might be the only species that can kind of uniquely get out of our own head. And by that, I mean, like, can think about something that's not in the here and now, you know, so sometimes if you if you meditate, or uh, if you kind of take part in these mindfulness practices, you might hear this term, your monkey mind, you know, that's supposed to be the part of your mind that when you're trying to focus and be in the present moment is thinking about, you know, what you're going to have for dinner that night, or, you know, the fight you had with your spouse, or just kind of going to the past or going to the future and so on. And I find it really ironic that it's called the monkey mind because it turns out that the monkey mind might be way more focused on the present moment than we think. You know, they might not be able to get out of their heads to think about the past in the same way as we do or the future in as broad a terms as we do. Um, They might be kind of way more focused in the present moment because they're kind of stuck in what's happening in the here and now to some interesting extent. And so thinking about what that means for how they navigate the world, how they navigate all their social relationships, Um, It's pretty fascinating when you try to think about how they must do it in ways that are different than how we as humans do it. So essentially, they're aware of the behaviors that might cause them to be at risk in the future, but they don't really think about things that are going to happen in the future. Yeah, I mean, one of the amazing things about being a human is that you can imagine the world right now in completely different ways, right? You know, for your listeners, like, you know, if it's not raining outside, you can imagine what it would be like for it to be raining. You know, you'd predict like, oh, I'd take my umbrella and I'd wear certain shoes and so on. And that's kind of crazy because you both know that it's not raining. And at the same time, you can kind of simulate what it's like when it's, when it's right. raining out, right? Um, we do the similar amazing thing when we think about fiction, right? You know, so all of us right now could imagine what life would be like, you know, if we were, you know, friends with Harry Potter and we lived at Hogwarts and magic was a thing. And 
you can imagine, you can immediately kind of make all these predictions about a world that's simply not true, like in your real life. And that's a powerful ability. It means we can make all these kind of predictions about the future. It means we can think about counterfactual events. It means we can simulate what it's like to be another person. We can really perspective take. And it's starting to look like all those abilities might be the thing that humans do uniquely, that even really closely related primates have some important limitations about the extent to which they can do that. And I think that's really powerful because you think about, you know, all the times we're kind of simulating these other worlds, like that's a lot of our leisure and our mental time is like not being in the present moment, but thinking about all these other things. Right. And in some ways it allows for incredible like creativity and interest and joy, but also like you said, then forces us to actively choose to try to be present, whereas other animals don't have to choose that. They're not they're not yeah, I think that. that's the, the problem for us is it's become so easy for us to be out of the present moment that it takes a tremendous amount of work and, you know, meditation practice and then Buddhist study to actually shut shut off that part of our mind that wants to just go off and simulate random things. Yeah. So how much of your time do you, would you say you're spending working on the, stored, the sort of, um, you know, studies of the human mind in comparison to animals? Well, for most of my career, that was a lot, you know, that used to joke, like, that was my day job. You know, that was how I spent a lot of my time. Um, but in just the, the last couple of years, I've shifted gears just a bit. Um, and that's in part due to a different role I've taken on campus. Uh, uh, I became uh, head of college on Yale's campus, which means that I, like, live on campus with students. I'm kind of like their sort of dorm mother or dorm aunt, as I like to call it, like, or like benevolent aunts that live with the students. Um, and serve as a mentor and help with programming and that stuff. But in that new role, I really kind of got more obsessed with what things were like on the ground for my students and, and wanted to find ways to use my psychology training to potentially help them. Because honestly, what I was seeing on the ground with the students, like, wasn't, you know, as uh, as good as I kind of imagined it or as good as I remembered it from being a student myself. I was kind of witnessing this college student mental health crisis up close and personal. Yeah, and that's super common. It's actually something I've talked about on this podcast before, and, and specifically with one of my former guests, Kate Fagan, who wrote a book called What Made Maddie Run about mm -hmm. um, uh, an, an all-American sort of teen who went to UPenn and then completed suicide, and nobody really in her life knew what was going on behind the scenes. And some of the studies from her book um, are becoming more and more commonplace for me to hear about because it is sort of um, this campus... Uh, campus-wide scourge and, and in ways that, as you mentioned, um, I'm a couple years younger than you, but around the same time, uh, we didn't experience when we were in college. And so it's fascinating mm -hmm. to me that, uh, of course, you would understand and hear about it, but that being actually on the ground floor of it was the thing that sort of really triggered your understanding of it. Uh, before we get into that yeah. quickly, are you still married to a um, psychologist? Uh, philosopher. philosopher. So, uh, yeah, so my husband is a, a philosopher. He teaches philosophy here at Yale. He studies uh, metaphysics. He teaches a very cool class at Yale that's always oversubscribed on the philosophy of games. So uh, oh, cool. sports games, but video games and board games. And so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's like fun being in the marriage of the you know, psychologist <laughs> and the philosopher. <laughs> so does he live in the college with you? He does. So he, uh, I'm the head of college and he's the associate, associate head of college, uh, which means he kind of gets lots of the perks hanging out in the community with students, but less of the responsibilities. So it's kind of a good deal for him. Back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain in just a minute. Hiring can be a slow process. 
Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at their web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. Okay, so you're at this college and you're now much more immersed in the lives of your students and you're realizing that their college experience is very different from yours. Um, and it was the inspiration for this class that you teach that's now the most popular in the history of Yale. One quarter of the undergraduates at the school have enrolled in it and it's now uh, available for free on the online course site Coursera. And over 410,000 people have enrolled already. I mean, this thing is taking the world by storm. It's causing you to go on television shows and you're starting your own podcast, which we're going to get to. Um, and it's it's not that surprising when you think about it. If you teach a class, uh, psychology and the good life or the science of well-being or, you know, basically how to be happy, people are going to be drawn to that. But I still imagine that there's a part of you that couldn't have possibly envisioned that it would blow up like this. No, it's still completely surreal, honestly. I mean, from just on campus, it felt really surreal, right? You know, I designed the class thinking, you know, probably like 50 students would take it, and that would feel like a lot of students on campus. Um, So when over a 1,000 students enrolled and I had to teach the class in a concert hall, that felt, you know, completely surreal, and I was humbled, and I was like, wow, this is totally crazy. Um, But what got more crazy was when I started getting lots of outside press for the class. Um, a couple weeks into the class, there was a New York Times article about uh, the class. And, and, and the line there is kind of like exactly what you said, which is like, you know, on the one hand, Yale students, like many college students, you know, face this mental health crisis. But I think the article was more about, you know, on, on the one hand, you know, Yale students can have this mental health crisis, but then they're also kind of really lucky. You know, they're young. They're like 19. Like they got into Yale. Like most of them are pretty healthy. Right. Like, you know, what about the rest of us? Like, if they need a class on happiness, you know, what about the poor, you know, 50-somethings and, you know, all the rest of us? And so that was kind of what launched the next wave of kind of when it became really surreal, which is that we had, you know, the national news media in, and have international articles about this class. It kind of became the thing that lots of folks were fascinated by, like why all these young Yale kids needed a class on happiness to kind of figure out how to live a good life. And... The fascinating thing is, of course, how you can you can kind of say the same about other parts of life. I had a former lawyer turned yoga studio owner who does presentations for law firms and other big companies on uh, mental health and gratitude and and presence and whatever. Uh, And he felt the same way about his fellow lawyers. Why is there this dearth of uh, of happy successful lawyers. They're some of the most well-to-do professionals, and yet there was this suicide crisis amongst them. Um, and you can mm-hmm. apply that to so many places, right? And 
so much of that, of course, which you talk about in your class, is that we don't still really understand what makes us happy. We have a lot of misconceptions about what will bring us happiness, how to find it and how to keep it. And, and also your dilemma, which is, of course, you can tell people how to get there and they still won't do the things that will make them happier. Um, you have a new podcast called The Happiness Lab. So I'm not going to give away the entirety of your course or all of those things, but I do want to get into the things that will maybe push some of those people who are reticent to get involved into better understanding, you know, what you're teaching in this class and how it's not just, okay, well, if you smile more, your brain will make you like really smile for real, right? Like it's, 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 yeah. uh, it's pretty in depth in terms of, um, having to rewire ourselves. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, the, sometimes people see here that there's a class on the science of happiness and they think it's going to be like, all woo or like, you know, positivity and like, you know, smile all the time. Um, I get letters from people who take the class sometimes and they're, you know, they, they've, they've come around, but the letter usually starts with, you know, I started this thinking it was going to be like hippie dippy crap. And I just did, you know, it's California stuff. Um, and in practice, like what the science of well-being is about is it's like really a rich empirical science. And the way it works is to say, okay, look, there's some variance. Some people out there are just happier. They can be more satisfied with their life than other people. What are they doing right? You know, what are they doing right? And what can we copy? If you're not feeling very satisfied, what can you do to kind of feel a little bit more satisfied? Um, and when you look at the science, the big insight you get, which is kind of striking, is that we don't have a great gauge on what we can do to be happy. You know, we were just talking about the work with the monkeys suggesting that, you know, we're really good at getting out of our own head. We can make all these predictions about what life will be like. You know, if we do take certain kinds of actions, you know, the road not taken, like we can make lots of predictions about what our mood is going to be like, depending on how things go. The problem is that a lot of those predictions are off. Like we have these motivations to seek out certain things. And we often think that those things will make us happy. But in practice, they don't work in the way we think. And so that's why I think the science is so important, why I've kind of gotten, you know, almost evangelical about trying to get the science out there to as many audiences as possible from the online class to the podcast. It's that we need some help here. You know, our, our central motivations, the things that we have that it's telling us how to make decisions, they're not leading us in the right direction. We're kind of going wrong. Um, and the science can really help us decide, like, okay, actually, those things don't work in the way you think. And you might need to be seeking out other stuff that you didn't realize from your own kind of decision material. Like your brain's not telling you the right thing to do. And that's why so many of us feel like we're working really hard. You know, we're putting time into our own well-being, but it's kind of not going well. You know, we feel like something's still missing. Yeah, it's fascinating that you use the word hippy-dippy because I always say that when I'm talking about this kind of stuff because that used to be what it seemed like to me as someone who was a very um, – uh, you know, raised by lawyers, everything must be proven, question everything, um, type A overachiever, like, oh, that sounds very flower child. But as soon mm -hmm. as I learned about the concept of neuroplasticity and as soon as there was science behind it, I completely changed my tune. And now I'm like all in on it. And now I want everyone around me to be all in on it. And I want all of them to learn all the things. And so we're going to get to that part, the frustration that you feel when you have people around you and you're like, do this thing, I swear it'll make it better. And they still refuse. Uh, but, but I want to mm -hmm. get to, you know, that, that actual science that you talk about, because it does, I think, for a lot of people who are reticent to really jump in, they need that like push of like, no, this is proven and we can show you how and why. Um, let's start with the GI Joe fallacy. Can you kind of explain that and how that influences what you were saying about sometimes your brain doesn't even know what you need to do. 
Yeah, I think the, so the GI Joe fallacy is one of my favorite cognitive biases. In some ways, it's a scary cognitive bias. Um, I don't know if your listeners are kind of my age or, you know, about that, or children of the 80s, basically. But if you remember G.I. Joe, it was this kind of cheesy army cartoon. No one really remembers G.I. Joe, but, but many folks who enjoyed the cartoon remember how it ended, which is that it ended with this public service announcement where G.I. Joe, you know, explains, like, don't talk to strangers or, you know, look at little ways when you cross the street, you know, big things in the 80s. Um, but it ended with the child thanking G.I. Joe, saying, thank you, G.I. Joe, now I know. And then G.I. Joe would say this famous phrase, they'd say, and knowing is half the battle. And then it would go, G.I. Joe, you know, if you remember the cartoon. But but this is what we think. We think, you know, knowing is half the battle. Once I know, like, what I should do, I'm just going to do it. You know, I can know how many reps I need to do on leg day, and, like, that's good. I'll just get really buff legs. Or I can know how much sugar I should have in my diet or how much sleep I should have, and I can just do it, Right. But the sad thing is, like, that's not the case. You can know exactly what you're supposed to do, but that doesn't immediately mean you translate it into what you're supposed to be actually doing. You know, like, I can know it's really good for me to get up and do a half hour of cardio every morning. But, you know, if I hit the snooze button every day, just knowing that is not going to be enough. You have to actually do the stuff. And so that's been the kind of this G.I. Joe fallacy. And so that's the G.I. Joe fallacy is we think that knowing is half the battle, but it's kind of not. And so we really teach students to not fall prey to the G.I. Joe fallacy. It's kind of one of the big principles of the course and even the podcast, which is like, I'm going to teach you all this stuff that science says. You know, it's not woo. It's going to be real scientific results. You're going to see graphs and all this stuff. But then it's up to you to translate that into your own behavior. Because if you just hear the studies and you're like, yep, that sounds good. You know, brain plasticity. You know, I'd love to change my brain. If you don't do anything, like nothing's really going to change. Yeah, and so much of it, too, stems from these, like, very strongly held ideas about happiness that turn to be misconceptions, ideas that we've been taught or have, for whatever reason, ingrained in ourselves that this will make me happier if I do X or Y or if I achieve X or Y. Can you talk about how the studies and science actually tells us that some of our most widely held beliefs about what makes you happy are wrong? Yeah, I mean, it's really jarring. I mean, this is a spot where, you know, I teach this stuff and my students will, like, fight me about it, right? Because it's like our intuition is so <laughs> strong, you know? So so one of the one of the best ones is money, right? You know, if I could just get more money, I'd be happy. Or so many of us, like, play the lottery and think, you know, like, the day I went Powerball, you know, it's going to be an awesome day, right? But does that really happen? Well, you can look to people who have lots of money and ask if they're really happy. And what you find is that, you know, if, if you're really poor and I give you an infusion of some more money, you know, if you're earning like $10,000 in the U.S. right now and I double your salary, that's going to feel good. It's going to increase your positive mood and it's going to decrease your stress levels. But if you're earning enough money that you kind of have a roof over your head and food on the table, um, researchers kind of define this as around 75 k in the U.S. right now, which is, you know, pretty, you know, decent middle class wage. Um, if you're earning that much and I double your salary or triple it, you don't get any corresponding increase in your well-being, which is definitely not what we think. You know, some of your listeners might be earning around that level and think, you know, if I could quadruple my salary, like things would be better. But the data, when you really look at people who make those different salaries, suggests that that's just not the case. You can also see this when you look at the kind of well-being levels of people who are lottery winners. You know, here's kind of we're getting more sort of anecdotal here. But what you find is that, like, those folks just aren't happy. Um, we were able to interview on my podcast, I interviewed uh, this psychotherapist named Clay Cockrell. Um, he's a psychotherapist to the insanely rich. rich. So he um, has clients who earn more than $50 million, kind of a lucrative, like, you know, mental health business model, if you can go for it. 
But what he finds is like, you know, he gets lots of clients because these folks tend to be relatively miserable. You know, they're lonely. They have trouble making social connections. They often feel guilty and they often struggle with, you know, the same thing that we struggle with, which is like, oh, I'm not feeling great. I need some more money. But to them, it starts feeling crazy. You know, they have $500 million and I think, well, I must need a billion. You know, maybe once I get to a billion, it'll be okay. Right. And so they kind of are struggling with the same things we are. Uh, even though, you know, they have the riches that, you know, many of us would dream of. And so that's kind of just one example of these many cases where we think certain life circumstances are going to be it. You know, we put in our head, like, you know, as soon as I make that extra money, or as soon as I move to that new place, or as soon as I get into that relationship, or as soon as I win that big game, like we think, you know, once I do that, I'll be good. But that's just simply not how happiness works. So some of the things, too, are tricks that our mind plays on us about what we think things will do, either provide us with happiness or annoyance or otherwise. And you talked to David Byrne, the musician, about small talk with strangers. And that's certainly something that some people are drawn to, right? I know my husband's father will talk to anyone anywhere. He'll, like, take a bus somewhere and then be like, I invited the guy over for dinner. And we're like, okay, uh, you know, <laughs> right? And then some people like me like to put my headphones in and I'm in a hurry and I've got a million things to do. Um, but the idea is that usually we believe that small talk is going to not provide us with happiness and it's going to be annoying. But instead, connecting even with strangers um, usually tends to to improve our mood. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up in the science is that, you know, we just have these bad predictions, right? So um, if I asked you, for example, you know, you're on a train commuting to work, like, you know, would you like to turn to the person behind you and have a like half hour conversation? Like, how would that, imp- would that improve your mood? Like, we hard no. people, most yeah. people, no, like, that'd be <laughs> awkward and weird. And like, like, super no, like, no, with capital N. That's what my students would say, right? But it turns out experimentally, if you're a mean researcher and you force people to do this, what you find is that people are happier. Like, you know, connecting with another human in a genuine way actually feels good. We just don't predict that. And, you know, one of the things that's scary, though, is it's not just our predictions don't just govern our individual behavior. Sometimes our predictions govern, you know, how we set up structures in the world, how we build technologies. You know, so if you think of all the technologies that are out there today, you know, from Uber, where I don't have to call a cab company, they just like, I don't have to tell anybody where I'm going, it just like shows up and it knows where I'm going and so on. Or like automated checkouts, right? You know, you get these at coffee shops now where I order my coffee online, you know, pay for it online, walk in, it's sitting there, I don't have to talk to anybody, I just like leave. You know, we might be getting rid of subtle opportunities to boost our well-being through a quick conversation, And more and more in modern life, those are going away. Yeah, and I think we can hear over and over that, you know, that technology is is pulling us apart and it's isolating us or that social media actually tends to make you unhappier. And yet we don't change our behaviors on that. And I think that's something you mentioned in your dilemma. So, you know, one of the things that you talk about in, in your class is at the end you do a hack yourself where you have to rewire mm-hmm. and figure out the things you are doing that will make you happy and the things you need to change. Can you hack someone else? Because I'm I'm loving to learn about gratitude and happiness and meditation and I want everyone to feel that way and I want my friends to feel that way. Um but is it can you can you how do you hack someone else? Yeah, well I think sharing the findings you know, sharing the findings for me has been like a good way to sort of hack other people Um, for exactly the reasons you said, you know, sometimes when people first learn about this, they're like, Oh God, this is hippy dippy stuff. But you're like, 
actually, somebody did a study and they measured people's positive mood. And after they talked to the person on the train, all of a sudden their positive mood got better. And you're like, huh, like that's not, you know, some hippy dippy stuff. Like they did this study or, you know, something like, you know, we had people meditate for 10 minutes a day and then we looked at their brain and we found that there were increases in brain size in certain regions of the brain after you meditate. Then you hear that and you're like, huh, like that's not hippy dippy anymore. Like that's like actual scientific changes in physical structures of our body. And so for me, hacking other people has been about like telling them these findings, realizing like there's some there there. There really is a scientific approach to improving how you feel and how satisfied you are with your life. And often when people hear that, you know, they're willing to kind of make the change. Um, then you have to help them and motivate them to do it, um, which can also be tricky in its own way, too. So how do you explain what makes us happy in the moment versus happiness as a larger construct? Because you mentioned earlier, I know that it's good for me to go work out. And I know that exercise creates endorphins and it makes me healthier and healthiness makes me happier and you live longer, blah, 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 versus I want to sleep in bed right now. Sleeping makes me very happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, both of those are good. It is worth knowing that, you know, exercise can improve well-being. In fact, um, regular cardio is as effective at reducing symptoms of depression as the prescription of Zoloft, which is one of the leading anti-depression medications. So exercise is super good for well-being. Also, sleep super good for well-being, right? Um, and so what you have to do is you have to kind of find ways to balance it. Um, the, the tougher ones are cases where it's like we're seeking something out that we think is going to bring us happiness, but it just simply doesn't. You know, for me, it's like, you know, if I've had a long day at work and I'm kind of like plopped down, like I don't think, oh, I'm going to go make a social connection and walk to the coffee shop and talk to a stranger. I think like, well, like I'm just going to go on social media. I'm just going to like scroll my Facebook feed. And it turns out that that feels crummy. Like people like actively feel worse after doing that. But it's like, you know, so then those are some cases where there's not a trade off. It's just like the hypothesis we have about what's going to feel good is just kind of wrong. The sad thing is that learning the science doesn't change the hypothesis, right? Like I know these data and I still have the urge when I'm like kind of feeling drained to like plop down and, you know, watch some boring TV or scroll through my social media feed. But I also know that, like, you know, if I just force myself to do something that feels kind of counterintuitive, it might work a little bit better. Do you have a different word for immediate gratification happiness and larger construct happiness? Yeah, there's there's some kind of work in the field that tries to distinguish between these two. Often people talk um, about a difference between sort of uh, how you feel, like the happiness of how you feel, which is things like positive mood and kind of how you're feeling in the moment. People often talk about that as kind of affective happiness um, versus something like what people often think of as kind of cognitive well-being, which is sort of how satisfied are you with your life overall. And you can imagine cases where those dissociate. I feel like my the, the standard example I give is often of like a new parent with like a newborn baby, you know, like the meaning in their life and their satisfaction with their life has probably gone up a lot. You know, they have this amazing child that they care about so much. But, you know, in terms of like moment to moment happiness, like maybe not fantastic, like they're not sleeping, they're a little stressed, dealing with dirty diapers and so on. Um, so sometimes you can find these cases that dissociate. But but more often than not, these things actually go together, you know, like finding the things that give you happiness in the moment often contribute to your satisfaction more broadly. It's just we often don't realize it. The things we think are going to give us happiness in the moment kind of have this disconnect. But the things that really work, you know, taking time 
to make meaningful social connections, taking time to be present, like those things can improve satisfaction in, in bigger terms rather than just in the moment, too. I'm sure you have a lot of students that are super receptive. They do the things. They're already probably people who may be predisposed to happiness or gratitude or some of these things. What do you do with the students who don't buy in or the ones who are less easily convinced? Yeah, I mean, my my goal has always been to show people the data. You know, kind of as you said, I think, you know, for example, like with this meditation study I was showing before, it's like, you know, 10 minutes of meditation a day and here's the, you know, the increase in brain size. It's like, do you want to be here in your brain size or here? You know, like you get to choose with your behaviors. You know, same thing about social connection. It's like, you know, here's a graph of what will happen if you talk to someone on the train. Here's a graph of where your well-being will be if you kind of stay in solitude. And most people will see the graph and be like, I'd rather be on the higher one. And it's like, well, then you have to overcome your intuition. And so I think, you know, it's much easier if you're kind of genetically pre- predisposed to do these behaviors anyway. And there are some genetic predispositions towards happiness. They seem to be that those people are naturally doing things like experiencing gratitude and being social and so on. Um, but the good news is that we can all hack it ourselves. It just sometimes por- involves forcing ourselves to go against some of the intuitions that we standardly have. And uh, playing devil's advocate for many out there listening, let's say um, these things aren't universally true. You know, on a certain day, it may be more restorative for you to listen to some music and be quiet than to talk to someone else. Or for somebody who is a, a very shy introvert, um, within reason, getting out and interacting with people is helpful, but maybe not to the point of serious anxiety, right? So all of these things are not universal truths, but they're they're widely held beliefs. Yeah, I think all you know, all of these are are practices. That the practices we're preaching about are all practices that we know, on average, seem to improve people's well being. And one of the things we kind of preach in the class and we talk about in the podcast is like. Uh, you need to try those out for yourself. You know, it's one of the reasons I called the podcast The Happiness Lab. It's kind of like you're an experimenter in your own laboratory of your happiness, and you're trying to see what moves the needle a little bit. Um, on average, these practices tend to do that, but you need to see what works for you. And some people resonate with certain practices more than others. Um, I, I, uh, in the podcast, I interview one of the biggest happiness experts in the world, Sonia Lubomirsky, and she'll tell you that she kind of just, she's not into the gratitude thing. You know, it just kind of doesn't work for her as well as some of these other kind of happiness hacks. And so she focuses on other stuff, which is fine. And I think it might not work for you for a couple of different reasons. One is like, you kind of just don't resonate with it. You know, that's fine. Another is that it's a practice that you tend to do a lot anyway. You know, you were mentioning like your partner's dad talks to everyone. Like he probably won't get more of a boost if he tries to make more of a connection because he's kind of right. feeling already, right? Um, so you kind of have to work on the ones that you're a little deficient on. Those are the ones uh, that can kind of have the biggest impact for you. We mentioned a little bit the annoying features of the mind, um, but what's another one that you talk about in the class? I think my, my least favorite feature of the mind is that we tend not to see things objectively. We tend to see things, you know, relative to some comparison point. Um, we talk about this in the podcast because I talk about the very strange finding that's relevant, you know, in sports, which is that, you know, gold, gold medalists, Olympic winners, like Olympians who win the gold medal, obviously are super happy. 
But what's strange is what happens to the other two medalists, because bronze medalists, it turns out, are also super happy. In some cases, yeah. they're actually happier they got than a medal. The gold medalists. Yeah. They got a medal. Whereas silver medalists are actively miserable. Like, in mm-hmm. fact, if you analyze their faces using these, like, careful facial techniques, you see that they're expressing things like contempt, disgust, like, true sadness. Like, they're feeling really crappy. And the reason, if you think about it, and it becomes obvious, is that you know, they're not thinking, I just meddled, I'm the second best in the world. They're thinking, I could have gotten a gold, and I didn't. And I love the story of the silver medalist, because it shows what so many of us go through in life, you know, like, my vacation's not as good as that other person on Instagram, or like, my salary is not as high as this other person, or for my college student, you know, that grade I got was fine, but it's not as good as like, you know, the one my roommate got. Like, we have these thieves of joy in our lives, and it's the social comparisons we make with other people. And if our mind just didn't do that, if it thought objectively, you know, we'd just probably be much happier with most of the things in life. But in fact, you know, one, one amazing apple can kind of ruin the batch for the rest of us that are kind of looking towards that one social comparison that makes us feel crummy. And well, so the good news, though, is that like with most things in the mind, there's ways you can hack this. Like we can consciously control our other social comparisons and our reference points. We just have to put a little work in, you know, which is why the silver medalists, you know, can kind of look for the bronze lining, as it were. You know, they can kind of find the right comparison point, but they just have to put a little bit more energy in than they would normally. Yeah, because, of course, you can you can objectively say silver is better than bronze. If they said before it started, would you rather win silver or bronze? You would say silver even then. After you win it, mm-hmm. you could still feel the same feelings of disappointment, right? And and that's yeah, where I think, you that's know, where you're like, talking yeah, about your mind I, is tricking you, know. you. Yeah, and I and one of the one of the cool things about the podcast is that you know we I try to find people in each episode who are kind of doing it right. And in my episode about silver medalists, I interview uh, figure skater Michelle Kwan, um, who if you, if you remember the kind of sad Olympics where she won the silver medal, you know she was really slated to win gold. Everyone thought she was going to get it. Um, she was beaten by, you know, a really young skater that people just weren't expecting to do really well. Um, but yet she was really pretty happy about it. I mean, she was like really magnanimous on the stand and was kind of known for kind of gracious, being gracious in that very kind of salient defeat. And when you talk to her, she said, well, you know, I had this other comparison, like I hurt my foot on the way to the Olympics and I almost didn't skate at all. You know, her salient comparison was like, she might not even be up there. And when you think about it, like, we all have another salient comparison, you know, like, like, there's counterfactuals out there that we can imagine that are, you know, pretty bad. You know, again, this is the beauty of our primate brain that can, like, special, unique human brain that can simulate all these crazy scenarios. Um, we can simulate all kinds of scenarios that make us really grateful for the kind of situation we're in right now. It's just we don't often put in work to do that. We kind of automatically get the comparisons that make us feel crummy but we can put some work in and develop comparisons that kind of make us feel proud of ourselves. You know, uh, more than half of Yale undergraduates seek psychological care while they're at the school. And it's like many other, especially selective admission universities, which you mentioned before, interestingly enough, a place that you would expect people to be happier, perhaps have better um, financial status. And, and at the very least are highly, you know, intelligent and potentially highly skilled people. Um, but because of the stresses and the pressure, uh, we're seeing it across the board in colleges. Do you find that the studies that you're doing and the work with happiness is applicable to many of those people? Or are you finding that the quote unquote mental health crisis uh, becomes, 
I don't, I don't know. I guess, is there a big difference between what we could diagnose as clinical depression versus just a dissatisfaction? And would you use the same sort of principles to attack both? Yeah, I think it depends on, you know, where where you are in the kind of clinical diagnosis, right? Um, you know, the analogy I often use is with other health, you know, variables, right? So, you know, if you're, you know, if you go to your doctor and you have high blood pressure and you say, what should I do, doctor? Your doctor might be like, well, you know, you should exercise a little bit more. That'll reduce your high blood pressure. But if you walk into your doctor and you're like, I'm having a heart attack right now, I'm in acute cardiac arrest, your doctor won't be like, well, why don't you hop on the treadmill and get some you know, exercise right now? Like that's the, right. when you're at a certain acute phase of the disease, you need something different. And I feel like mental health works the same way. You know, if you are in a position where you're acutely suicidal, you need an immediate kind of care um, that is different than just, you know, taking time for gratitude or doing a quick meditation, right? Like you really need a special kind of help. And I'd, again, encourage any of your listeners who are there, like, you know, get that kind of acute care immediately. But if you're kind of just feeling like you're a little bit depressed or, you know, even, even if you're clinically depressed, but kind of not at that level of acute need, like these kinds of techniques that we're talking about can really help. Um, and researchers like Sonia Lubomirsky are finding more and more that these aren't just techniques for people who are, you know, kind of close to baseline who want to bump up a little bit more. They're really techniques that, you know, used in an ongoing way can actually help with levels of depression that we often think of as like requiring clinical care. Um, you know, again, some of my favorite examples are simple things like exercise, you know, like a half hour of cardio a day works like a prescription of Zoloft. You know, we see the same thing with getting like the right amount of sleep. Right. We forget that, you know, eight hours of sleep a day can be preventative from having depression like symptoms. And so, you know, we often like forget that some, sometimes these fixes, even for kind of clinical level symptoms or clinical level psychological distress, you can use some of these techniques to get better. But again, you know, within reason, like, you know, if you're acutely having a heart attack right now, you need a different kind of care. And the same is true for you know, really extreme cases of mental health dysfunction as well. Well, and then there's that secondary step of it's easier for me to take Zoloft than work out. So how do you then yeah. convince somebody to do the work to get that to that place that they want to be in um, if they're not naturally, you know, predisposed to do it or they're if, or they're, you know, resistant to it? Um, yeah, I think the, big, the, big, the biggest form of resistance is that our intuition is that it's not going to work. You know, and, and again, I teach this stuff. I know the studies like I can quote, you You know, the scientific journals that they're in. And I still have a trouble with the intuition, right? You know, my intuition is like, you know, when I get up in the morning, half hour, is that going to affect my mood? Like, I kind of get, you know, it's going to make, you know, my muscles stronger, but like, really, it's going to affect my mood. Like, I just don't have that intuition. You know, same thing with like, you know, taking time for gratitude, you know, to sit down and scribble down five things I'm grateful for. Like, that's going to improve my mood throughout the day. You know, I've seen the graphs and it still feels like that can't be true. But it is true. You know, like, that's what the science tells us. Like, these kinds of things help much more than we think. And sometimes when you know the science, you can kind of, you know, kind of strong arm yourself into doing it. I think another good reason that these techniques can be really powerful is that they don't, um, in many cases, they don't actually take that much time when you think about it. Right. You know, taking time for gratitude can be a quick five minutes you know, every night before you go to bed. You know, the levels of meditation that you need to kind of see, you know, changes in brain function and increased mood, you know, it's like 10 minutes a day. You know, in a pinch, probably all of us can find 10 minutes a day to do something to improve our well-being. And we're often doing that, you know, we're often like 
working jobs or my students are like, you know, taking classes that they think are going to make them happy or studying for grades that they think they're going to make them happy. Like oftentimes we have at least 10 minutes to work on it. We're doing it anyway. We just have to do it in the right way. I know you just started this happiness class last year, but um, are, are you fascinated in understanding how the practices that you're teaching will change as our interactions with the internet and various kinds of social media change? Because I feel like even if you did this class like five or six years ago, it would be very different based on how much our lives are now intertwined with internet. Yeah, I think that's right. I think thinking about both, you know, how the internet is affecting our well-being, but how we can best use technology to promote some of these practices is like a fascinating and, and really important question. Right, because like you can know that being on social media doesn't make people happier, but you're still on your Twitter giving people stories about how social media doesn't make people happy, right? Like, like exactly. how do we then yes. like, harness I, I technology? Of, like, irony about this, right? You know, right. It's like, I know I'm tweeting this, but yeah. <laughs> well, and to like, like you said, to harness technology and there's meditation apps on our phones. So great, awesome. But we're also not supposed to have screen time right before bed. So if we want to meditate right before bed, like, exactly. which is the lesser evil, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about how we're going to have to keep evolving all of these things as our relationships with our phones and technology change. Um, we're running out of time, but I have a quick question that probably can't be done in just a couple of minutes. But it's something that I just started thinking about the other day, and I can't decide if it's a question for a neuroscientist or a psychologist. So I tried mm-hmm. it on a neuroscientist, didn't get much. Let me try it on you instead. How would you describe the difference, if you believe there is one, between our brain and our personality, because isn't everything that we do a function of our brain? And so then are we actively choosing to be kind or narcissist or evil or thoughtful or empathetic? Or is it ultimately the way our brain is wired? Yeah, you're asking a question. I wish I had my husband, the philosopher on, right? Because <laughs> what you're asking is a question kind of about free will, right? You know, it's like, yeah. If all, if all of our personality is due to our biology, you know, like, like, is it is it just fixed? Like, are we just stuck that way? Or do we have some kind of control over it? You know, or even in a more fundamental way, you know, it's not just our brains, like our brains are the product of like, ultimately biology and physics, right? They're just like, chemical reactions that are happening that are just like, you know, there and they exist in the world. Like, given that, like, how do I have control over it? You know, like, you know, it feels like I would have a decision if I wanted to hang up the phone with you and end this podcast right now. But like, that would just be my brain. And that would just be physics doing it. So you know, what gives? So so I think the problem is you don't need a neuroscientist or a psychologist, you actually need a philosopher. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I got to I got to get one of those then too, because it then also refers back to what we were talking about is, if I'm someone who when you tell me you'll be happier and a better person, if you do these things, I do them. Is that me? knowing I can change my brain? Or did I already have to have a brain that was willing to make that change in order to keep changing it? Yeah, these are things that we don't, you know, we don't have great empirical data on and lots and lots of folks fight about. But but I think the good news is that what the data suggests is that lots of people who hear these scientific findings and think, all right, I'm going to do it. You know, everything we know suggests that you actually can. You can put these things into practice, even if it takes a little bit of work. And so I hope your your listeners will take you up on it. Yeah. And I hope our listeners were not smoking weed for the last three minutes of this because their, <laughs> their their brains would be blown. And before I oh, let perfect. you go, uh, we, of course, have to promote your new podcast, which launches, I believe, today, the day that we're releasing this. So give everybody a little teaser as to why they should check it out. 
Yeah. So the new podcast is called The Happiness Lab. Um, it's like all the tips that you can learn in my class, but you get it in a simple podcast form. Don't need to take it out of your class. All the ways your mind lies to you about what makes you happy and what you can do to overcome those lies. And you can check it out wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, it should be there. Happiness Lab with Lori Santos. And you talk a lot uh, to different people, uh, famous, successful athletes or musicians or other psychologists uh, throughout the podcast, right? Yeah, it's it's both like, you know, the scientists who are doing this stuff and the people who I think are, you know, doing it, like listening to the science and putting it into practice in their own life. You know, people like skater Michelle Kwan. We have uh, Michael Phelps' head coach. Uh, we have a trans woman, Navy SEAL, uh, who's looking at how to put it into effect thinking about the obstacles in her own life. It's just been so inspiring to meet all these folks. Um, and it's been super fun. And then the Coursera, I don't know if I'm saying that right, or Coursera, yeah, whatever Coursera, it is. Yeah, Coursera, yeah. Coursera. Um, it says that the, the class actually started on September 10th. Is it a class that you could take at any time, or is it done like in, in connection with a classroom and timing? Yeah, so the Coursera class you can take at any time. Um, there are periods of enrollment, which are just kind of like, different cohorts of the class, but you can sign up at any time. Uh, you can check it out at uh, Coursera.org, and the name of the class is Science of Wellbeing. And it's everything we teach our Yale students, except you don't have to retake the SAT and you don't have to pay the Yale tuition. <laughs> Seems like a chip to all the uh, Yale students that had to do all that, but you know what? <laughs> they get, they, they get, get to, be, they get they get to be with you in person. Yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> Before you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does, but nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right, the Spanish Inquisition. Ten questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Uh, I think it would be the Madonna Immaculate Collection. Oh, nice. Uh, two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Uh, luck? Is that, could that be a habit or quality? <laughs> no, it's also way too modest. I think then, I, then I'll do, I'll do humor, humor. Okay. All right. Uh, three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Um, self-regulation, you know, controlling my own behavior. Interesting. I was going to ask about that because as someone who's teaching this, do you now feel required at all times to follow the things that you're preaching? I'm better at it, but you'd think that, like, you know, the professor would find that easy all the time, and failing at self-regulation is like, I can do it, but it never feels easy. Right. And you have the same issues we all do with your brain playing tricks on you or, or all that, exactly. so you're not immune to exactly. it. Exactly. Uh, because knowing isn't half the battle, so just because you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Uh, I've, I've had lots of cousins who were in fist fights, so I've been like the person standing behind the fist fight, but never in my <laughs> own fist fight. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives for anyone for one day, who would it be? Uh, probably Beyonce. Doesn't everyone say Beyonce? Yes, honestly. <laughs> it's really say. remarkable. Like, she's just, she's just a beacon of light right now for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Uh, ooh, this is kind of a scary one. Um, I, uh, once broke my ankle very badly when trying to learn how to ride a bike, uh, as a graduate oh. student, so I never learned. And so that was pretty embarrassing. Oh, that stinks too. Did you learn and are, or are you terrified now? Uh, I've learned that walking is ever so much more convenient than <laughs> riding a bicycle. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? 
this is very specific, but I do lots of yoga and I'm currently trying to learn how to do a crow pose. And so nice. the most local thing I want to improve is like getting good at that. I'll tell you that I really struggled with crow pose. And then I just had one instructor that set us up differently. And now it's like piece of cake for me. And I oh thought it was I find a this strength. Person. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a strength issue and it absolutely wasn't. It was the position of my legs on my uh, backs of my arms. So maybe okay. grab we'll, your we'll instructor. Crow for sure. Yeah, grab your instructor <laughs> afterwards and see if you can just play around with that placement. That might be that might be your problem. I can even do side crow now, which is something I never thought I could. So oh my gosh, it's all amazing. about all about that teacher. Uh, number eight, if you could play commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Hmm. Um, I think maybe like try to take other people's perspectives and maybe give mm. them some way to do that even better so we can see what other people are feeling. Empathy. Yeah. Is like mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. Especially now. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, most scared I've ever been. Um, I think kind of, hmm, it's, it's like cheesy to say in a movie, but I feel like, you know, like watching like Stranger Things, <laughs> I'm kind of a wuss, so like I can't really deal with horror movies. Yeah, well, also it's it's you know signs of a of a lucky life if that's your scariest moment. So nothing to be mm-hmm. ashamed of. That's something probably to be just thankful what's coming for. to mind quickly right yeah. now. But yeah, yeah. Um, number ten. What three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Uh, let's see. Um, uh, funny, smart and helpful. Nice. Those are good ones. Uh, final question. Who would you recommend I have on this podcast from any industry? I, of course, I'm going to go after your husband now for being a philosopher <laughs> and talking about games and sports, but uh, who else would be someone interesting I should talk to? I mean, well, Beyonce, you know, I'll put a plug in for that. <laughs> of course, um, yeah. But I'll, I'll give you two of my favorite colleagues in this space. Uh, one, his name is Jamil Zaki. Uh, he's a professor at Stanford, and he studies how we can teach people to be more empathic and to kind of oh, harness nice. like this natural tendency we have to be nice, uh, what we can do to promote that. Um, and then the other one is uh, Elizabeth Dunn, who's a professor at the University of British Columbia. She does really fantastic work on the connection between tech and well-being. Okay. I love both of those. Thank you so much, Lori. This was really fantastic. And I look forward to the podcast. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Great chatting with you. That's what she said. Be sure to check out another great podcast in the Levitard and Friends podcast network, Marty Smith's America. Download and subscribe to Marty Smith's America right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, if you like this show, you might like my nightly radio show, Spain and Company. If you can't catch it live, listen to select segments posted to the Twitter feed at Spain and Company. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, the word reckless. R-E-C-K-L-E-S-S. I always want to spell it with a W. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. Reckless, R-E-C-K-L-E-S-S. It's an adjective. It means dangerously careless. Wreck, W-R-E-C-K, is a verb to cause the ruin or destruction of something or a noun, a ship, or building, or thing that's been reduced to a state of ruin. So you would think that reckless would be spelled W-R-E-C-K-L-E-S-S. Like, if you're reckless, you'll cause a wreck. You'd think they'd have some sort of shared etymology, but no, actually, when you think about it, reckless with a W would be without a wreck, wreck free, wreck less. So it would be the exact opposite of the word reckless with an R. And as it turns out, reckless with a W is from the 1200s, Middle English, Old Danish. 
whereas reckless with an R dates before 900 to the Middle English or Old English wreck to have care, concern, or regard. Therefore, to be reckless is to not take heed of something or to be careless. I'm so confused. But I feel good about what we accomplished. At least we kind of know why they're completely unrelated, though I'm sure I'm still going to continue typing W-R-E-C-K-L-E-S-S every time before I remember that it's R-E-C-K-L-E-S-S. There, I fixed it. Shit, no, I didn't. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate and review and leave the dilemma in your review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. <laughs> <laughs>